I want to begin this morning by telling you a story about how not to fight sin. This is from The Adventures of Frog and Toad. And uh, the story begins with Toad baking some cookies. And they turn out to be fantastic cookies that are so good that he must bring them to his friend, Frog, for Frog to taste. Frog eats one of the cookies and he says, these are the best cookies I have ever eaten. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog, with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie, but there were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower, asked Toad. Willpower is trying hard not to do something that you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying not to eat all these cookies, asked Toad. Right, said Frog. Frog put the cookies in a box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. So Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. So Frog got a ladder, and he put the box up on a high shelf. There, said Frog, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog climbed the ladder and took the box down from the shelf. He cut the string and opened the box. Frog took the box outside. He shouted in a loud voice, Hey, birds, here are cookies. Birds came from everywhere. They picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Toad sadly. Not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. You may keep it all, frog, said Toad. I am going home now to bake a cake. I think even the adventures of frog and toad can teach us a lot about how not to fight sin. Mere willpower is not enough. You leaving this room this morning with a determination not to sin, or to sin less, or to better control your sin, will not help you in and of itself. Boxing up your sin 
tying a ribbon around it, putting it on a shelf out of the way, putting it in its manageable little corner of your life will not help you fight your sin. In fact, even throwing it to the birds, destroying it will not help you because you'll just go and bake a cake and try to do something else. What you need, what we need this morning is something bigger and better than the example of frog and toad. We need the word of Jesus. So if you're not already there, go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus is preaching a sermon to his disciples about how to live rightly as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. After telling his disciples how to understand the scriptures, he begins contrasting kingdom righteousness, his righteousness, the righteousness of his people, with what was believed to be righteousness by the Pharisees and the rabbis of his day. Six times he'll directly contrast his teaching with the teachings of the religious leaders. Back in November, our our brother Eli tackled the first of those contrasts when Jesus said to his disciples, you've heard this about murder, but I tell you this. Today, we're going to look at the second of those six contrasts where Jesus confronts the popular teaching about adultery. And in Jesus' teaching, we learn how to get serious in the battle against sin. Listen to the word of Jesus one more time together from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In his book, Finally Free, a biblical counselor named Heath Lambert writes this about this passage. Jesus speaks these words to people who are struggling with sexual sin. In other words, Jesus is speaking these words to you. He makes such a strong statement because he wants you to wake up to the seriousness of your sexual sin and alert you to the radical measures necessary to deal with it. Jesus calls Christians to a serious standard and a serious strategy because of the serious stakes involved, end quote. I don't think I can improve upon Lambert's outline, so we're going to use that today as we examine this passage together. If you want to get serious in the battle against sin, you need to understand that Jesus calls you to a serious standard. Jesus calls you, first of all, to a serious standard. Look again at verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
The rabbis of Jesus' day taught a very narrow view of purity. To be pure, according to the rabbis of Jesus' day, was to not commit the physical act of adultery. As long as you kept yourself from that, then you were pure. Jesus comes along and returns God's people to the intent of the law of Moses. The intent was never merely to let you get as close to the line as possible as long as you don't cross it. The intent was always to govern your heart. So sin is, is more than the physical act that you or I might commit. Sin is thinking about it and wanting it. Sin begins in the heart. So Jesus says in Matthew 15, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This is one reason why the Disney advice of following your heart is so wrong-headed. It is out of your heart that all of your sin comes from. Jesus says this is where sin begins. Your heart, who you are on the inside, is kind of the, the steering wheel of your body. It's not enough to keep your body from the physical sinful act. Jesus says your heart must not want it. And there we see the attempts of something like frog and toad really don't cut it, do they? Because no matter where you put those cookies, you still want them. The individual sins that you and I commit are the symptoms of the heart disease called sin. So just like you can have a, a mild case of a virus like COVID-19 and not really know that you have it, you can be a relatively clean person on the outside while on the inside your heart is sick beyond imagination. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, Christianity is not about symptom management. It's not what it means to be a Christian, to manage the symptoms of your sin. To be a Christian is to admit that you are spiritually dead because of your sin, cry out to Jesus, and ask Him to give you a new heart, to repent and believe, to turn from that sin and trust in Jesus. Now, all of this is true of sin generally. But in our text this morning, Jesus is teaching us about a specific sin, the sin of lust. But before we make any progress, I think, in t tackling what Jesus has for us here in this text, I think we need to deal with the inner attorney inside of each of us. You all know about this, don't you? Every single one of you has an inner attorney that is constantly working to either accuse or excuse you. And that inner attorney is telling you right now that perhaps you really don't need to listen to this. Maybe, ladies, it's saying, well, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm a woman. I'm not a man. So I can take a nap because this one's not about me. Or 
if my husband's nearby, I'll just devote the rest of that, my time to elbowing him. Maybe you're saying, maybe that inner attorney is telling you, I'm not looking at a woman with lustful intent, so it's fine. Or I'm not married, or the person I'm looking at is not married, so it's fine. Or I'm not looking at all, I'm only thinking about it. These are just a few ways that your inner attorney might attempt to excuse you from needing to listen to what Jesus has to say here. John Stott comes along to this text, then he says, Jesus' emphasis is that any and every sexual practice which is immoral indeed is immoral also in look and in thought. So in other words, if you are a human being north of puberty, then this passage applies to you. Like it or not, this passage applies to you. Maybe your inner attorney is thinking, well, so-and-so better be listening. This is a way that we keep ourselves from paying attention, isn't, he? isn't it? Instead of thinking about what God might want me to hear from his word, I think about what my husband needs to hear, or my wife needs to hear, or my son or daughter needs to hear, or what that member who, who had that really tough conversation with me last week, what they need to hear. Listen to me, Christian. God did not draw you here today so that you could think about so-and-so, but so that through his word he might speak to you. Or perhaps your inner attorney is saying, well, what kind of look are we talking about? Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Maybe you're, you're seriously fighting this sin. Maybe you walk into this room and, and you are in a knockdown, drag out battle against this sin. But we live in, in such a sexualized culture, don't we? And that you, it's almost impossible not to notice certain things that entice lust. You can't go to the checkout aisle at the grocery store without there being temptations to lust. And you come to a passage like this. And perhaps it's crushing you to the point of despair. Am I really a Christian? Do I really belong to Jesus if I see these things? In the original language, the verb look suggests someone who keeps on looking. This is the, the extended glance, the leering gaze the, the double take, the intentional pursuit of enticing books, images, or videos, or thinking and dwelling on any of these things. I love the way Martin Luther put it. He said, you cannot prevent the birds from flying in the air over your head, but you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. The difference between just seeing and looking with lust. So a biblical counselor named Brad Hambrick, um, I think, gives us a helpful definition of lust. When Jesus says, looking at a woman with lustful intent, 
He says, lust is entertaining myself with something that is not mine by covenant. Lust is entertaining myself with something that is not mine by covenant. This is a sin that affects not only men, but women. It may affect us differently. We may be tempted differently. But this is a sin that affects every human being east of Eden, except for Christ himself. Verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Can we admit, brothers, sisters, and friends, that those are hard words to hear? Especially in a culture that so worships the God of sex. Those are hard words to hear. Now, Jesus is not saying that lust and adultery are the same thing. He's not saying if you look and lust, then you might as well just go ahead and commit the physical act. That's not what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his body. Immorality, the, the physical act, is actually a sin against the body. But lust is just one of the steps that eventually leads to there. Think of it like this. Imagine a train with a bunch of different stops. And the final stop at the end of the line of this train is the sin of adultery or sexual immorality. Earlier stops include things like inappropriate photos or inappropriate touching or pornography or an emotional affair or being alone with someone that you should not be alone with or, or flirtatious conversations. The first stop on that train is lust. Jesus is saying, don't even get on the train. That's what he's saying. When he says, those of you that have looked with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery, he's saying all of these sins are the same species of sin. And if you break one of these, you are guilty of all of it. By the way, if you find yourself in this room this morning on this train of lust, let me remind you, you are not the conductor. You might think that you can stop when you want, that you can go as far as you want and not go any further, but you know, if you're honest with yourself, you know that is not how sin works. I remember hearing years ago from my pastor that sin always, always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. If you find yourself in this room this morning riding that train, 
Do not think that you can get off whenever you want to apart from the grace of God. So how do you get off the train? You admit to yourself in this moment, you silence that inner attorney, you admit yourself, yes, I'm struggling with this, I'm looking and thinking in ways that I shouldn't. What do I do? How do I stop? That's where we need a serious strategy. If you're going to get serious in the battle against sin, you need to understand that Jesus calls you to a serious strategy. Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. A little bit further down. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. What does Jesus mean? I remember uh, years ago, years and years ago, I was probably seven or eight years old, and we were um, uh, a very strict fundamentalist homeschooling family, and I remember we went to some homeschooling conference. It was me and my dad, and I still remember the speaker's name, and I don't remember much of what he said except for this. He was talking about this passage, and he talked about how he ran into a man at Kroger with a patch and a hook, and he was like, that guy is super biblical because he clearly cut out his eye and cut off his hand. He was, and it was his right hand and his uh, right eye. He, he, he obeyed the Bible. And I remember like being a seven, eight-year-old boy sitting in my pew being like, oh my goodness, I don't know that I could do this thing. Um, there have been, throughout church history, some that have really literally applied Jesus' teaching here. So, for example, one of the most famous examples is a guy named Origen in Alexandria who was so convicted after reading this passage that he literally castrated himself. Thankfully, the early church strongly condemned practices like this, even going so far as to say a pastor who did stuff like that or taught stuff like that should be excommunicated. So this is not what Jesus intends. Jesus is not saying what you need to do is literally cut off your hand and cut off your eye. John MacArthur says the solution to sexual impurity cannot be external because the cause is not external, right? We understand that, right? You can lose both eyes and both hands and still lust, your mind will give you plenty to work with. By the way, the text itself ought to discredit any attempt to view this as radical amputation of the physical body. Because if you cut off your right eye or pluck out your right eye, can't you still see with your left? If you cut off your right hand, can't you still feel with your left? So Jesus is not literally asking us to amputate our bodies. He's using radical language to make a radical point. If you will put your sin to death, you must adopt a serious strategy. That's what Jesus is saying. If your eyes are tempting you, act as if you have no eyes and refuse to look at what's tempting you. If your hands are 
are tempting you to sin. Act as if you don't have them by refusing to touch, refusing to click, refusing to press play. Jesus isn't talking here about mutilation. He's talking about mortification. Mortification is the believer's ongoing successful work of putting sin to death. We read about it in places like Romans 8.13. It says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or Colossians 3 verse 5, it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So let me ask you, Christian, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what radical steps do I need to take to put this sin to death in my life and in my heart? What radical steps do I need to take? I want you to imagine you're working in an emergency room the night of a horrible terrorist attack. The room is, is flooded with people. Each of them has an injury. Some are suffering for PTSD. Some need stitches. Some of them have broken bones. Some people are missing limbs. Some are bleeding internally. Some need emergency surgery just to make it through the night. So what do you do? You do triage, right? You, you, you have to assess each case individually. How serious is the issue? What needs to happen to care for this person? And what priority of care do I need to administer? I want to suggest to you the same is happening in this room right now. It, listen, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we live in a world that has been bombed with immorality. C.S. Lewis um, asks us in one of his books to imagine a world where everybody goes into a crowded theater to watch as the curtains are lifted and a plate with food is placed on the stage and everybody just stares and salivates looking at a plate of food. It's ridiculous, right? And he said, if you, if you looked at that city, would you not say that this was a place where people had an unhealthy appetite for food? Is it not then that we in our culture have an unhealthy appetite for sex? Do the same thing? So we, we, we've been, we in this room, this morning, brothers and sisters watching online, we have been bombarded by the enemy with immorality and immorality. And there are in this room and in this body, there is a, a, a variety of injuries. Some of you are in a serious spot right now. Some of you have so given yourself over to this that you don't know if you can ever put it to death. Some of you are faithfully fighting, but you need to be encouraged and you need to continue. Some of you don't want to let it go. Like Augustine who once, once prayed, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. 
And in this room, there are all sorts of people with all sorts of ways that we might need to respond. And there's no way I can hit every single one of them. But let me just suggest a few radical responses that some of you might need to take to fight this sin. Maybe, maybe what you need to do is to destroy or delete the movies or magazines or pictures that you're turning to. You get rid of them. Maybe you need to stop watching certain movies or shows altogether. There's certain things that you watch, that you enjoy, but there are elements in there that you cannot watch without being tempted in this way. Maybe you need to stop hanging out with those friends at school that constantly tempt you. Maybe you need internet accountability software on your phone or your tablet or your computer or over your whole Wi-Fi. Maybe you need to get rid of your smartphone altogether. Maybe you need to get the TV out of your bedroom or get rid of your TV entirely. Maybe you need to stop talking to that guy or girl at work. Maybe you need to quit your job entirely. Maybe you need to stop reading those books that cause you to be dissatisfied in your marriage. Maybe you need to stop messaging that old friend on social media. Maybe you need to get rid of your social media entirely. Maybe you need to have a painful conversation with your spouse or your parents confessing your sin. Maybe you need to talk to one of your pastors. Maybe you're listening to all of those things and you're saying, well, I can't do that. And if you're saying that in your heart, I would just challenge you, you have not yet understood what Jesus means when he says, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. Is there anything in this life that is more valuable than your purity before God? If you're going to fight this, if I'm going to fight this, I need to adopt a serious strategy. I heard about an old traditional Baptist church that invited people to the front after the service every Sunday to pray at the altar. And week after week, the same man came to the front every Sunday and he prayed, Oh Lord, clear the cobwebs out of my life. Week after week, same prayer. Oh Lord, clear the cobwebs out of my life. And one Sunday, the pastor was finally fed up with it, and he leaned over the guy's shoulder, and he said, Oh, Lord, kill the spider. All right, there is sin that must be killed at the root, or it will kill you. John Owen said, be killing sin, or your sin will be killing you. Are you willing to adopt a serious strategy to fight this sin. Can I suggest to you, this might be one place better than any place that shows how Christians are distinct from the world. Listen, our world is consumed by this. Christians must not be. Must not be. And if I could give you one more piece of encouragement, it would be wherever you are in this struggle, 
my greatest challenge to you, Christian, would be to open up with somebody about where you are. Honesty heals, secrecy kills. Your sin will always grow in the dark. But as you shine the light of openness and confession and honesty, it will begin to diminish and die. If you want to get serious in the battle against sin, you need to understand the serious standard that Jesus sets and adopt a serious strategy because of the serious stakes. Serious stakes. Two times, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus says that it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus is saying that indulging the sin of lust, even for a moment, is enough to send you and I to hell forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this sin is that great? I want to suggest to you it's not going to send you into hell the way that you might think that it is. Here's the way I think we think this works. We think, we think that this statement kind of functions like a parent, <coughs> excuse me, a parent threatening their teenager. You know, parents, when your teenagers start to drive, they've got their license, all of a sudden, when that happens, at least if you're at all like my upbringing was, uh, that becomes a new thing that you can threaten your children over, right? If you don't stop doing such and such, I'll take away your keys. You're grounded, right? And we, we, we say, you know, if you disobey, if you don't get in line, you're not going to drive anymore. I'm going to take the keys. I think we think that Jesus is threatening hell like that. If you don't stop lusting, I'm sending you to hell. I think that's what we think. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying something more like this. If you see a car driving past a warning sign, cliff ahead, and you warn that driver, stop the car now. Or you won't be able to drive the car anymore because you're going to be careening over a cliff. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Lust is going to end up in hell because that is the eventual destination, cause and effect. You cannot hold on to your lust and your Lord at the same time. You can't have both. Maybe you're in this room and you're already experiencing the, the hellish effects of lust in your life right now. Your, your, your lustful appetite is always hungry, but never satisfied. That's what lust does, doesn't it? Always promising more, never delivering. Always hungry, never satisfied. Doesn't that sound like hell to you? 
even perhaps for some in this room, even the gift of intimacy within marriage is no longer satisfying to you. You're bored with what should bring you pleasure and excitement because of the hellish effects of the sin of lust. Or if you're single, perhaps you'd rather indulge your lust than pursue a real flesh and blood relationship because that takes a lot more work. Maybe you started down this path because it made you feel free, but now you're a slave. You thought you could manage it without hurting people, but now you're caught in a web of lies. Or you've confessed, and you're beginning to see how much damage you've actually done to the people you love. Eventually, if you will not let your lust go, you'll careen off that cliff and you'll end up in hell because you cannot hold on to lust and Jesus at the same time. So Jesus says in Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You cannot love Jesus and your lust at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. I think C.S. Lewis illustrates this perhaps better than anybody in his book, The Great Divorce. He tells about a man with a lizard on his shoulder that represents lust. And the man's invited into heaven, but he realizes he can't go in as long as he's got that lizard on his shoulder. So an angel approaches the man and says, would you like me to make him quiet? Of course I would, says the man. Then I will kill him, says the angel. Well, I don't want to do anything drastic, the man says. The angel says, it's the only way. Do you want me to kill it? Can't we talk about it later? There is no later. There's only now. May I kill it? Can't we just do something a bit more gradual? I think I can keep him under control. That won't work. Well, I would let you kill it, but I'm not feeling great today. Could we do it tomorrow? Could we do it another day? There is no other day. If you kill it, you'll kill me too. No, I won't. But you're hurting me. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Finally, after this continual back and forth, the man gives the angel permission to kill the lizard of lust. And in that moment, the man turned into a brighter and better version of himself as if he was finally, truly alive. And that dead lizard turned into a beautiful white stallion. You cannot cling to Jesus without killing your son. If you're going to be willing, if you're going to uh, be rid of the lizard of lust, you must put it to death. Not tomorrow, today. And the first step is humbly admitting that the lizard is there 
admitting both to God and a faithful brother and sister that you have an enemy that you cannot defeat on your own. Can I suggest to you, church, this ought to be the safest place where we can do that? Listen to me. If you're here as a Christian, you're saying that you believe your sin is so bad that Jesus had to die on a cross to save you. What's more embarrassing than that? Why would confessing this particular sin be harder than admitting that? This ought to be the one place where we can open up. You don't have to do it with everybody. You don't have to stand up in the middle of your fellowship group this week and and confess in front of the whole group. But are you willing to talk to someone? Do you feel like you have to suffer alone? As long as you do, your sin will thrive. The longer you hold on to the sin of lust the harder it is to kill. Frog and Toad found that out the hard way. So did Frodo and Sam. In many ways, I think lust is like the ring of power. It promises power, but it makes you weak. It makes everything around you blurry and faded. Even though you hate it, it becomes precious to you. The longer you hold it, the more enslaved to it you become. It can only be destroyed in community, and it will cost you more than you can imagine to be rid of it. But in the end, it'll be worth it. And in the end, even Frodo and Sam couldn't destroy the ring on their own. It required the death of another. So, too, with the sin of lust. Remember, church, the very one saying these words to his people, saying these words to you, is the one that willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for this sin. He loves you. He died for you. Follow him. You pray with me. Jesus, thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are good, that you alone are worthy of our affection and our praise. Lord, I don't know the temptations that are going on in the hearts and minds of those in this room this morning, but I know this. Our sin loves to stay hidden. Our sin loves to stay in the dark. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of every one of your children in this room. May we commit not to stay hidden in the dark, to confess so that we might be healed, to take radical measures to fight this serious sin for your glory and yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray.